When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Give me two seconds. All right. Um, ready, boys? <clears throat> I'm ready to go. <clears throat> episode, Dwayne, episode 20? Yeah, episode 20. Connor was uh, 19. All right. Three, two, one. Oh, that's <laughs> Oh, that's got to be an outtake. That oh, my goodness. That has to be an outtake. That at right click, you're right. That has to be an outtake. Well, it counted down beautiful. Three, <laughs> two, one. And there goes the phone. Between hockey and those other sports, you gotta be tough to be a hockey. I idolized Dominic Kashuk. I played goalie because of Dominic Kashuk. My life in hockey has been started because of Sabres hockey. I didn't need playoffs this year. I wanted it, but I didn't need it. But when you screw up for the fans as much as this team has over the last like five years, and just don't hold yourself accountable. I'm sorry, I'll hang up and listen, I'm sorry. Welcome to Two Goalies, One Mike, an in-depth look and behind-the-mask conversation about the greatest game on earth, where everything goes and nothing's off-limits. Now I'll tell you something about this guy. This is only three minutes, eh? Whammo! Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to episode 20 of Two Goalies, One Mike. I'm your co-host, Johnny Cullen, and joined, as always, by my man, Dwayne. Dwayne, how are we doing? Uh, I'm holding up pretty well here, Cully. Uh, beautiful Monday afternoon, but I, we got a good reason to be inside right now. I'm super Abs- pumped for this one. Absolutely. As am I. You know, we've talked about having some big name guests, but this one, you know, takes the cake for me. Somebody that we grew up watching and idolizing. And we are pleased to present Clint Malarchuk. Clint, thanks again for joining us, man. We're, we're really excited. Uh, it's good to be on with a couple of old goalies, you know. <laughs> we, don't old, know where, old, we don't know where this will go. <laughs> the old yeah. beaten beak over there. Yeah. <laughs> they call him the beaten beak. Right, right Clint? I believe, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Bent beak. Oh, bent beak. I'm sorry. The bent beak. Yeah, I'm one of the few I'm good for that. Turn it upside down. Like, you know, it's all rubber. You can turn it right upside down. It's amazing. I was going to do, I was going to join the circus. Bent, bent, beaten. It's taking some damage. Hey, I'm in that boat too. I feel bad for our listeners that can't see, but, you know, what a collection of uh, broken cartilage in our noses here. Put put us together, and and between all of our body parts, we might we might have a functional goalie. But that's part of the fun of of being, uh, you know, playing one of the most difficult, if not the most difficult, position in sports. And, and like I said in the intro, guys, we've had some some big name guests, but Clint, we really appreciate you being here, man. So let me ask you this: Where are you? Uh, how are you holding up through this throughout this quarantine, and uh, where are you located right now? Well, I'm pretty fortunate compared to a lot of people because I have. Uh, uh, I live in northern Nevada, kind of in the Lake Tahoe, Reno area. And I've got, you know, mm-hmm. I got horses and all sorts of animals. And, of course, my barn is where I, I hang out all the time. This is my office. This is my tack room where I'm at right now. 
Um, I got a gym in my barn. So I'm pretty, you know, I'm outside, I'm active. I'm, you know, I'm not stuck in a condo or an apartment and uh, with all sorts of restrictions, you know, that you got to follow. I'm, I'm pretty lucky to have this property. I'll tell you what, Clint, I, uh, I haven't been to my gym. It seems like in, I don't know how, it's, I don't, it's, you know, I don't even know how long it's been. And I try and do stuff at home, man, but it's not the same. I'm telling you right now, I'm in like full dad bottom without being the dad thing right now, man. Just like, hey, I got you covered dad. on that part. I'm, I'm the dad with a dad bod. Yeah. <laughs> no. So Clint, so, that sounds beautiful, man. Now you mind if I ask what, what, how did you guys end up out there? What made you, are you a family out there or no? Oh no, no. I, I grew up in Alberta and, uh, you know, after I got traded to, to the States, I kind of stayed in the States. Um, Vegas. Ended up playing, finishing my career in the minors in Las Vegas. Uh, always had horse property wherever I went. And uh, so I was got into school at 38 years old, and I struggled so mighty at school as a kid. And uh, for me to go to school at 38 and get a certification in horse dentistry and horse chiropractic, and then I was coming down through this area. I was living in Idaho. I was coaching the double uh, A team, the Idaho Steelheads back then. And yep. in, the sum, in the summer, I had kind of a tour and I got to meet some of the veterinarians down here and clients. And they said, why don't you just move here? And I had so much business uh, in, in this area that I, it, was an easy, it was an easy move. And they made you feel at home there with uh, playing with uh, with Vegas and you, when you ended your career. I remember they had like a big ceremony for you for your retirement. They gave you a horse and the whole whole, whole shebang. So uh, I can I can imagine that you know it felt like home there once you retired and you wanted to stay. Yeah, that I, uh, Vegas was good to me. Uh, you know, I got out of there. I was only there about five years, I think. I I finished my playing career there, and then I got in coaching. And mm -hmm. then I went to a level lower because I really wanted to get out of Vegas at the time. It was just getting too big for a small town guy like me. And uh, so I went to Idaho, coached there for a few years. And then uh, then I got into the goalie coaching deal with the NHL. Uh, I think it was Florida I was with first. And then, oh, geez, Columbus, Atlanta, Calgary. But uh, this, this, this was a pretty, pretty nice transition here. We're high desert. We're nothing like Vegas. It's not hot like Vegas. We get four seasons. The winters aren't quite Buffalo-ish, but uh, we do get oh, snow. No. <laughs> what was it like coaching in Atlanta? Like, you know, that whole – the franchise with the Thrashers. I mean, that had to have been something else. Well, you, you know, we had, uh, we had a good group of uh, coaching staff and management. Uh, you know, unfortunately, the, 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 the owners were more into the basketball, and I think they just got the hockey to fill dates for you know when the basketball team wasn't playing so we didn't have that kind of like diehard hockey uh, ownership it was, we were kind of like the sideshow for the basketball well and I feel like Buffalo had had a bit of that um you know before the Pagulas took over and and now it's you know a double-edged sword with them owning the Bills and the Sabres um Clint me and Dwayne have talked about this and, and you have you know obviously when you play for the Sabres you know you know, absent a Stanley Cup, you, you guys were competitive, you know, and, and you found ways to, to, you know, at least make the, the fans, you know, feel like they, they were getting their money's worth. And it's unfortunate because you saw how passionate this fan base can be, I'm sure, oh, yeah. you know, not, not only through your playing career, but, you know, I'm sure as, as you were coaching and, you know, you saw some of the, we, Dwayne, what we talked about, the 06, 07 team, and then obviously, yep. you know, 98, 99. So it's, it, you know, part of, part of the reason why this podcast was born, Clint, was 
you know, it stemmed out of, you know, Dwayne as a season ticket holder, his passion and, you know, the lack of success here has been frustrating, not only, you know, for us, but for everybody. And we talk about all the time, me and Dwayne, you know, we grew up in that era where the Sabres had, you know, Dominic Hasek and those great teams, obviously going to the Stanley Cup finals. Um, and, and, you know, for me, it's, it's unfortunate for, for the younger, younger fans, because part of the reason I became, you know, so obsessed with hockey is because that we were surrounded by this competitive team and some really great goaltenders, including yourself. Um, so how did that compare, you know, with the fans here in Buffalo to other places that you, you played and coached around the league? Well, I, I, you, you nailed it. The, uh, as far as hockey goes and, and sports, uh, Buffalo was, it's a blue collar sports town and they just love their teams. They love their athletes. They're passionate like you guys are. Um, you know, I remember when, when my book came out, we went to Buffalo for a book signing and my wife had never been to Buffalo and she goes, what, what's it like? You know, and I said, eh, it's, you know, typical American city. And then I, I went on to say that the people there are the nicest, most passionate hockey sports people, but really friendly. And yep. we were we, we we weren't on the ground two hours, and she went, "You're you're not kidding that people are yep. awesome here," and that's the way they are. And I think for, you know, I was kind of a humble guy. I always signed autographs. I never turned anyone down or anything like that. And they really appreciated that, you know, that you would stand there for you know however long and and sign <laughs> autographs or hockey cards and all that. Yeah. They're very, very, very appreciative because of their passion, mostly. Yeah, I still have uh, friends in Buffalo, you know, that I've made from my years and years ago when I played there. And you, we talked about ownership, too. Um, you know, we had the Knox brothers, uh, mm -hmm. and they were awesome to us. You know, it, it was nothing for them to, to walk in the locker room and shake your hand and, you know, pal around with you. They, they were very humble, nice people. You that's don't see that very often anymore either. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's, that's, that's cool to hear because like the Knox era was a little bit before my time, but you know, I, it, so I don't know a ton about it, but just that interaction, like Dwayne said, you really don't see that. And I feel like that goes a long way. Clint, when I played, I, I bouncing around the OHL, me and Dwayne joke, cause I always had my bags packed around the trade deadline getting traded <laughs> three times. But the first time, you know, it felt like I was dealing with absentee owners. I got traded to Windsor Clint. And Bob Bugner was part of the ownership group. And it was, a, yeah. it was an interesting dynamic. And, and I'm sure you've crossed paths with Boogie. But, and Dwayne, I talked to you about this. Just, you know, having that face-to-face, -face, like Clint, you mentioned, with the Knox brothers coming in and, and, you know, shaking your hand. I felt like not only, you know, a connection there, but almost like I want to go out and win for this guy. Right, right. You go through a brick wall for him. Yep. <laughs> and I feel like that goes a long way. Um, and I don't know if that exists here now. And, and I know the landscape for sports ownership is changing quite a bit. Um, but when you have that owner that you're willing to, like you said, go through a brick wall, I think that goes a long way. Well, you know, we had uh, the, the first year there, um, Rick Dudley was our, was our coach. And he's that type of guy. You, you wanted to go through a brick wall for that guy. And if you lost, you felt worse for him than you did for yourself. I mean, cause he was a passionate, hardworking guy. Rick's still a good friend of mine. And he's uh, I think he lives in Lewiston there. Yep. A question for you, Clint, cause his name's getting thrown around a lot right now to be a possible assistant GM here in Buffalo. Um, not, not that we're trying to break any, any news here, but like, if you talk <laughs> to him at all about that. You know, I talked to Rick quite a bit, but I haven't talked to him probably for a month. 
And uh, so this is news to me too about his name. It doesn't surprise me because everywhere he's gone, the guy's, the guy's the hardest worker I've ever seen in hockey. And all the scouts uh, agree, you know, he sees more games than any other scout. And as a GM, I, I, in Florida, I think he was a GM there. I've worked for him as a coach when he was a GM. And as most GMs are, they're on the road with the team. They're with the team all the time. Rick was not like that. He wanted to be out there watching prospects or um, possible draft picks. That's, That's awesome. awesome. Dwayne, I yeah. wanted to, if, if, if you got one more, I'd love to touch on after that, uh, you know, kind of growing up in, in Alberta and that. But did you have one more follow-up question there about Dudley? Uh, not about Dudley. I did want to ask this a, little, uh, a minute ago. When you, uh, when you came down to Buffalo for your book signing, did you uh, treat your wife in any of that Buffalo uh, cuisine, oh, yeah. the great oh, food yeah. we have here? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> Some of the best in the country, baby. That's an automatic. <laughs> what, you know, uh, what, what, where was your spot? Where was your spot when you were here? Um, there was a place out, we all lived out in Williamsville or Clarence out in that area. And so I guess the younger guys maybe went downtown a bit, you know, the anchor bar or whatever. I don't know. But we, there was a bar called Rudy's out there and, uh, it's still there. I believe in I think it's still I, called I think Rudy's. Yeah. Rudy's. Yeah. I think I know exactly what you're talking about too. Yeah. Well, it was cool on that, on that note, Dwayne, I think we were talking to Marty Baran and how he said that, you know, visiting players, they loved, it might get a bad name in the media, but uh, visiting players loved it because like you said, Clint, everybody, they loved the food and, and it wasn't hard to find, you know, it didn't have to be a, you know, a fancy restaurant. It could be a little dive bar, but the, the food yeah. was excellent. Yep. And we all know as goalies, you, you, you need your food. I was a creature of habit. I'm sure we all are to a point where I needed a good pre and post game meal. And that, that went a long way. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. And it was very affordable there. Buffalo exactly. wasn't an expensive town. I don't think it, I don't think it is now either. No, it still isn't. So, um, Clint, I wanted to talk a little bit about, you, you mentioned that, did you, so you were born in Grand Prairie, Alberta? Yes, sir. So what was your minor hockey career like? I know you ended up in, uh, the WHL, but, um, you, and then, uh, you know, prior to that, what, did you play in the Alberta junior league? Yes, I did. In fact, uh, what was that like? I, I, it was awesome because I was young. I, I was, oh, I was fourteen or fifteen, and I kind of skipped a year of midget, a year or two of midget, and because uh, Fort Saskatchewan in outside of Edmonton uh, recruited me and wanted me to play there, and um, so I, I did it. And uh, that's when I think I started really uh, to excel because you know it, it's junior, and you're treated more like a pro. You think you are, anyways. And uh, you, you got, you know, pretty high level coaching. And uh, that's when I started to kind of uh, excel a little bit at, at my position. I'd say so. You know, in that first year, 77, 78, you went 23 and nine and one. And I mean, as a young guy coming in, I mean, that's impressive numbers. So uh, I know the WHL works a little bit differently with, with guys getting drafted and whatnot. So those two years in Fort Saskatchewan, um, you know, what was that like and, and when and how did you, or I guess, when did you know and how did it happen about, uh, you know, getting to Portland Winterhawks? Well, uh, Fort Saskatchewan was kind of like the, the farm team for Portland. And back then they did it a little different. They had a, what they call a protected list. So once you're on that list of like Portland, they kind of own your rights. And uh, so Fort Saskatchewan, fortunately, wasn't that far from Edmonton where my uh, parents were living at the time. And uh uh, it was a good stepping stone for Major Junior. We had a great coach, Genic Timichuk, 
the training staff. I mean, I think that Fort Saskatchewan traders did it better than anybody else in the league. There was the Red Deer Rustlers as well, and that's where the Sutters went through. And they, they had a pretty, uh, pretty good program too. But they treated you like a man. They treated you uh, kind of like a pro, even though you didn't know what a pro was treated like back then. You felt like you were treated like a pro. And, you, and when you're treated a certain way, after a while, you act that way. Yep. So you, you subconsciously just kind of reciprocate. Absolutely. And I can attest to that too. I, I, like I mentioned, I bounced around and, and I talked to Dwayne about this. You know, I played with some great players. You know, I went from Niagara to Kingston to Sarnia. But when I got to Windsor, Clint, it, it, it was just walking into the building. And, and although I didn't know what it meant to be a pro at that point, just uh, the way they approached it, and, and not only the building, it was a fantastic building, but you walked in and you felt like a pro and that rubs off. And it did, it did so much for my game uh, because, you know, my, my, my habits became better. Um, you know, my preparation was there and the coaching too, it, it really rubbed off on you. And when you approach it like that as a, as a younger guy, it's amazing what that can do for your game on the ice. And for me, you know, it led to getting some, some tryout camps in, in the national um, but it's awesome to hear that the, the traders did it that way in Fort Saskatchewan. So making the jump then to the WHL, you know, some guys have a tough time getting acclimated, but it sounds like they did a great job preparing you. Um, so what was that like stepping into to Portland and playing in the dub your first couple of years? Well, my first year was not a great year for me. I was super homesick. Um, was struggling with some off ice issues with my mental uh, health. And uh, so I, I was devastated. I didn't get drafted that year. And so the following year, I things kind of came together. I uh, got over my homesickness and, you know, came and didn't have all these outside distractions. So I had a, I had a good year. And that was, uh, like I said, I missed my first year of eligibility. But the second year I got drafted and I was, uh, I was pretty stoked about that. Of course, you know, that's one of our dreams. Just get one name called. Now, when, when dealing with all that, Clint, no, um, obviously, you know, I read your book and um, the things that you're going through with the homesickness um, and, and whatnot. And like, what, what, what was more, what was the most difficult thing about that? Obviously, uh, was it, you know, in, like a, you know, because obviously we discussed before we came on the show that, you know, it's always, you know, the stigma of masculinity, not being able to talk about certain yeah. things that's going on in your own life because it, it's, a, it's a sign of weakness. Um, was it, was it also, did you ever feel like if you, you were to come forward to that, like, you know, maybe teams wouldn't want to touch you stuff like that. Like, like, oh, you yeah. know what I mean? Like, yeah, it, it, you know, it, it, it drives you crazy because you're putting, you're, you're putting the game before your mental health. And, you know, it, it just, as I read your book, I, that's one of the things that pop into my head because, you know, I think we've all dealt with that at some point in hockey you know, and not just hockey, just life, just coming forward to say, talking about your feelings and whatnot, especially at that age, like you don't want to, you don't want to, you know, make yourself seem weak because, you know, people might be like, Oh, you know, you know, well, that, that guy, that guy, he's not, he's not fit for this game, you know, which isn't is, is, is the case. Dwayne, at all. Dwayne, it's called stigma. And, yep, stigma. And, and we've, we've come a long ways uh, getting rid of it more and more. But back then, boy, I mean, especially in the Western Hockey League, it was a rough and tumble, uh, bench clearing brawls, regular. I mean, it was a tough, everybody, you were treated like a man, of course, but uh, maybe inside you're not, you're not ready for that kind of uh, responsibility and pressure. And the last thing you want to do, if you're going through mental health issues like I was, was 
talk to anybody about it. You do it in silence. The only person I really talked to was my mom about it. The coaches mm -hmm. didn't know. Um, they probably saw it, but uh, there was no way you're going you're gonna to say, hey, coach, uh, I'm struggling with this. Maybe can you get me into a counselor? Or <laughs> That just didn't happen back then. Yeah, I'll tell you right now, after reading that book, Miss uh, Henning was her last name, correct? Or her maiden name, Henning? Henning. Henning, yeah. Miss Henning, uh, for the listeners, if you haven't read his book, this woman was an absolute matriarch. Um, reminded me of so many of qualities that my own mother had before she passed. Like, honestly, you know, you couldn't have had a better mother, Clint. You know, tell oh, me I know. the things you went through. Yeah, I know. And Holy I, I, I did something the other day. I think it was a, a uh, might have been another podcast. And uh, the question was asked, who's the most influential person in your life? And I said, oh, definitely my mom and still is today. And uh, my mom saw it. She goes, you got to quit giving me all those accolades. Hey, you know, and she, she cusses pretty good. Hey, like a sailor. I love God, it. God damn it. You know, you don't, you, 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 she's, she's just very humble. I love it. That's right. I never, I never hear my grandparents swear ever. The only time I ever heard my grandfather uh, sign elsewhere is when my dad got distracted arguing with uh, one of his buddies when we were taking a road trip down to, uh, to either Mackinac Island or Virginia. I can't remember. I think it was Virginia. And I got distracted. Man, I'm sitting next to my grandfather in the back seat, and he goes off into a ditch. And my grandfather's like, "What the fuck? What the?" First well, time I ever heard the man. First and only time I ever heard the man swear. Just went off from the hip. Just f this, f that. You f an idiot. <laughs> that was well, great. My, oh my, mom, my god. My, my mom's uh, 85, and she still throws f bombs out there like it's nothing. <laughs> you know, and so sometimes uh, it's not the quite the the setting. For it, uh, you know, she's pissed off at something, and she doesn't care who hears her or anything. <laughs> you know, she's walking awesome. with a cane, all all crippled over, and all of a sudden, you got this old lady <laughs> throwing out f bombs, or maybe cussing somebody out. But uh, she she'll never change. She's a stand up uh, stand up gal. You know what? what? One last behind. Sorry, go ahead, Dwayne. No, one last thing before I keep back to Was it the port? Was it in Portland or was it in uh, Fort Saskatchewan? The the rink, you, the barn you played in. That had the uh, the chicken wire for glass. Yeah, yeah, that was that was uh, Fort Saskatchewan. Oh my God, Cully, you, you got you got to read this book, man, because <laughs> we, you think about the movie Slapshot and stuff, yeah. like wow, like that was real life. <laughs> we we uh, even when we went to the WHL uh, Portland, we had we had glass, but we go up to Seattle to play, and it was that chicken wire again. And they used to spit on you through the chicken wire and throw beer on you through the chicken wire. You know, it was just. Uh, sometimes you felt like in the movie, the blues brothers, when they're playing on the stage and they, they had chicken wire up in front of the stage because everybody's throwing bottles and stuff at them. <laughs> I remember I had nothing compared to that, but <clears throat> one, one game in Owen sound, there was, there was some kind of fight cast Zach Cassian got, uh, he, he got, uh, he beat up Jesse Blacker, this guy, he was on his way off the ice. One of the fans in the tunnel, cause the fans are right on top of you there as you're leaving in the corner. Um, one of the fans said something about, you know, his mother and I think, um, rest <laughs> in peace, I think she had passed away. So it lit off and he had a short fuse to begin with, but he absolutely lost it. And all of a sudden I see, cause I'm, you know, I'm right here. I look over as Cass is getting kicked out. He, he, he hacks him into the stands and, and it was a melee. It broke out and, uh, cops were called, but 
Um, not this was before the cops had gotten there. The period had ended, and now I'm walking through the tunnel. And somebody said, "Hey, Colin!" And I look up, and here comes a tall boy, a beer coming at me, and it still had a little bit left, so it had some weight to it. Hit me right in the back of the neck. And the worst part was, is the the beer that was left in there starts dripping down my back. And at this point, I didn't have an extra set of gits. We were on the road, so I remember playing the rest of the game in my beer soaked uh, my beer soaked shirt. Uh, and the coach or the trainer walks by. He's like. Cully, you're not drunk, are you? And I'm like, get the hell out of here. I just got hit with a beer. Oh, man. But, you know, when, I was with the, when I was with the Sabres and uh, it, it had gone pretty public, I was having mental health issues, obsessive compulsive disorder, things like that, and I was hospitalized. Well, uh, the rumor was that maybe I was a drug addict or something. And I, so that's why I went out and said, no, I don't, never do, done drugs, never will. And it kind of, I didn't like that, that reputation so I went public and said no this is what I've been diagnosed with and everything so when I came back ready to play uh, they sent me to Rochester to play two games on a conditioning stint and I remember we were playing Binghamton and they were chirping me really bad like yeah take another happy pill you psycho you you know you, you know how hockey is the, yeah. The, yeah. the gallows <laughs> it's, it's, it's ruthless and I, it really kind of hurt me a little bit, but you know, you tough it through. And it, there was about a minute in the game, and the one guy, um, it, and we we won that game. I want to say two nothing or or something. And I got a shutout first star and a fight because I fed one guy with a minute left in the game. I absolutely fed him because he was one that chirp chirp chirp. Hey, have a happy pill. Have a happy pill. And so I thought, well, we got this game won. <laughs> I hope he gets a shift. Shut out or not, I'm gonna I'm gonna grab him. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna a, duck this guy. It ended up in a, in a five, you know, six on six brawl. So I love yeah. it. Well, hey, that's the that's the goalie Gordy Howe hat trick right there, eh? There you go. Yeah. Shut out, win, and a, and a fight. Uh, but and, you know and, that guy had it coming to him and, and win the fight. Oh yeah, he got the W. Oh, I love it, um, Clint. And I, I, I can't wait to touch on it towards the in, in a little bit. But you've been such a, you know, you stepping up and, and bringing attention to to not only your own your own battle with, with mental illness. I feel like you played an integral role in, in changing that stigma that we talked about before. Um, you know, because even even when me and Dwayne were coming through, it, and it started to get some attention to it, but there was still that stigma that you know, if if you ask for help or Nobody did because we're expected to be these, you know, these, I almost feel like we're expected to be, you know, nameless, uh, feelingless soldiers. And we have no ability to, to have regular human emotions. And, and that's a shame. And I give you so much credit. And I thank you for, for what you've done in, in bringing awareness um, to your plight with mental health issues um, and in your role in, in really changing the stigma. And, and we're not there yet but we've taken a big step forward and it's at least starting the conversation that I feel is so important. And, and Dwayne's talked about it a ton and, and bring, you know, light to this, but we're not there yet. Like I said, but I thank you on behalf of, you know, not only the hockey community, but anybody that's struggled with, with a form of, of mental illness uh, because you've done a lot for, for the community. And I think that is so commendable. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And I, I like to think that's been my greatest accomplishment um, writing the book, obviously, is it was hard, very hard to do, hardest thing I've ever had to do. But uh, at the end of all uh, the feedback and gratification you get from knowing that you've helped people, and you know the, the mental illness part is, it's still perceived as a uh, as a weakness. 
and it's not it's a sickness it's, yeah. it's no different Sick, than not weak. yeah I, I i got a chemical imbalance of the brain it, it, it what's the difference of a diabetic having the chemical imbalance of the pancreas it's just a different organ but it's treated different so when the book came out uh, you know it was described as raw uh you know the, some of the blurbs on there don cherry and and uh um you got the book in front of you i think uh uh Dwayne. Yep. Is there blurbs on the back of that one? Because there's two titles. Is that the crazy? Yep. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the, the one I, have, I have the one in Clint Malarchuk, A Matter of Inches, How I Survived the Crease and Beyond. We got uh, a quote from Don Cherry. This is a tough book written by a tough survivor. It will help a lot of people and must read. And then we got Steve Stephen Brunt from Sportsnet, uh, Gary Joyce, Doug McLenn, uh, Kelly Rudy, which I know is a personal friend of yours. You grew up with him, correct? Yep, from the book. And then uh, Brian Burke. Um, Brian Burke said, this is an amazing book, an odyssey of pain, illness, determination, and triumph against long, long odds. This took courage to write and requires a strong stomach to read. I treasure it mainly because of my respect for the author. This book will save lives. So that's Brian Burke saying, you know, about the toughness, you know. And uh, so those, those were unbelievable for me to read and go, wow, Don Cherry said that, Brian Burke said that, yeah. Stephen Brunt said that. I mean, well-known people that, uh, you know, Brian Burke is a very tough guy image, you know. Don Cherry's got the toughest guy image in the world. And, you know, for them to say the book is, you know, raw, um, will help people. Now, that, was, that, was, that helped me uh, when the book was published that these people had read it and uh gave that kind of accolades to it it meant a lot to me for sure and, and go ahead Dwayne. No, I, no i'm sorry uh just you know and like when i when i read this you know um it was like i said it, it, it you know I, I couldn't put it down on honestly it was um there was a there was things in there where you spoke about how sometimes with your wife you needed reassurances sometimes like you were so indecisive like i honest to god clint it was like we're twins looking at yeah because i do it all the time. i still do it today um you know, at, you know with what i went through and what call because i'm going to tee him up in a second um too um is you know i dealt with what you know my upbringing the relationship to my mom and my dad uh you think i found out later in life uh just losing my mom at an early age actually i found out she had cancer on my 21st birthday you know so like forever my birthday is just like not something i it's not like I don't want to celebrate it, but it's not something I just like look, look forward to. Yeah. Um, and I uh, just, you know, between that, my grandfather passing, who was another big influence in my life, um, you know, just in between that. And like I said, I, the treatment I received growing up play, playing, uh, you know, varsity hockey, you know, I, I mentioned, you know, I haven't mentioned this in the podcast yet, but like I said, I was, you know, I was, I was, I was physically abused, emotionally abused. I was, you know, urinated on, like, I, 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 had, I had the assistant captain of my team, you know, urinate in a shampoo bottle and watched and laughed as I used it. Like, you know, it was bad stuff and just the depression that I went, that I went through through that. And the thing is, you can't talk about it. It's like you can't – it's your teammate. As bad as he's treating you, like, who am I to – in my own head, I'm like, who am I to sit here and, you know, rat him out and not be a good teammate, even though the guy is literally, literally yeah. just spread around the school that, you know – you know, I, I pissed in this shampoo bottle and I watched him use it and laughed about it. And then like dealing with my own depression that came from that. And I mentioned before, like, you know, I, I had suicidal thoughts and tendencies because of that for a little bit. And, you know, even to, like, even today, it's just like you, you, you search for these reassurances about yourself and your life. And it's so, 
so tough to deal with. And after, like I said, reading your book, it was just like, holy shit, man, I could, I could sit down and talk to this guy for hours because like, it just, <laughs> there's so many similarities, like just between me, not, I'm not just like trying to say I'm looking, me and you are like looking at a mirror, but it's just like, there's so many tendencies that you had. And just, I look at my own life and it's like, wow, man, like that's like, I, I, I get it. Like, I get it, man. Like, Again, well, today, no matter what, what, what path of life I'm, I, it's going on, like I, 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 I deal with it every day. Well, with my journey now after the book and public speaking like I do, I meet so many people that um, they read the book or they heard me speak and they go, oh my God, you're just, I'm just like you. And, but the thing is, we suffer in silence because of the stigma. So yep. it, for the first time, people hear the story and they go, man, this guy actually played in the NHL and he was not a, a well man. And, nah. you know, but you battled through it. Yeah. Well, yeah, eventually I got the professional yeah. help. I needed, yeah. You know, and Cully, and Cully, and, and Cully you know, you, you dealt with that knee injury that you spoke about book where the staph infection. Um, and I'm going to tee Cully up here because, you know, that's where I think you and him could even relate because, you know, for a little bit there, you thought that your career was, you had doctors tell you that you're, you're never going to play hockey again. You're going to play goalie again. Uh, I, Kelly, I had staph infection too. Did you, you had staph? No. So I had my, uh, I had a small tear in my meniscus, Clint, and uh, I was playing for the Sarnia Sting at the time. And they were, they were, um, they wanted to trade me. And you know, with, with an injury, you can't trade somebody. Um, so instead of having, you know, every, a lot of goalies suffer meniscus tears, right? And oh, yeah. If they catch it soon enough, it's it's a simple scope, and they're able to you know keep your cartilage. Well, it got to the point where you know it started you know maybe once a week I'd have my knee lock up trying to get up, yes. and then it got to the point where it's almost every practice and every shot, and it and it gets in your head. But instead of having the surgery, uh, this, you know I would have been out maybe two three weeks. They shot me up with cortisone, and I look back and not blaming them. I didn't ask enough questions. I asked, hey, will this allow me to play? And they said one hundred percent. Got the, got the cortisone shot, and I felt great. Next day, I'm like, oh, guys, you're, you're geniuses. This is awesome. You know, I'm ready to go. You know, I, I felt like, uh, felt like, you know, five years younger. Um, sure enough, they ended up trading me because I was healthy at that point. Um, mm -hmm. Not knowing that all the cortisone was doing was numbing the pain. Yeah. And, and it turned out I played some of my best hockey. I got traded to Windsor, uh, you know, starting over a first-round pick in Jack Campbell. So that's when I got invited to the Buffalo Sabres uh, rookie camp. And oh, nice. three, and this was about two and a half months after I got the shot, you know, the new team didn't know I was dealing with any of this because, you know, I thought it was fixed. The cortisone shot wore off. I was warming up against the game against the Plymouth Whalers. And in warmups, uh, I went down, I felt my knee lock up and it was a bucket handle tear in my meniscus. So they ended up removing 95% um, of my medial meniscus. And that was just the beginning of it. Um, slowly but surely, you know, our body is smart in the way that it reacts to an injury. So instead of, you know, putting the pressure on the inside medial, it went to the lateral. I got that torn, had another couple surgeries. And it was at that point where uh, after my third surgery, the doctor said, do you want to be able to walk your kids to the bus stop? And I, and I was confused. I'm like, I don't have any kids yet. What are, where are you going with this? He said, well, if you continue playing, um, you will, you'll be, you know, in a wheelchair, you'll be, you'll be you needing a walker to walk. And, and that was tough for me at that time uh, because looking back, you know, had I gotten, uh, you know, had I just gotten the surgery I needed at the time, who knows what could have happened. I, no, nobody wants to go out on, on somebody else's terms. And, you know, it was unfortunate that I had to deal with that. So 
Um, but, you know, like you said, there's a positive to anything. It got me into coaching, and I've been very fortunate to stay with the game I've loved. Um, but so Dwayne was mentioning that, that you went through something similar. How did the staph infection come to be? Uh, I, after the surgery, I got it in the hospital. But it, that is the worst feeling. And you're, you're just young and dumb. And, and yep. when your knee locks, and, oh. and, it, it, and you, I, I can speak for myself, and I'd kick hard, kick it out. So it would kind of just go, you know, back in, relief. Back and every time you're doing that, you're tearing it more and more. Yeah, little so bit, the little staff, bit. The staff I got in the hospital, and uh, then it went to the bone, which is gangrene, basically, osteomyelitis. And they were talking about amputation and, and that. And I was in the hospital on antibiotics for two months, wow. and uh, nothing was working. And then finally, they found an antibiotic that started to work. And I was probably a week, maybe... 10 days away from amputation if that didn't start kicking in. That's scary. And like you said, it's, it's one of those things where we, we, we fight through it, we play through it. Um, but ha anybody that hasn't experienced it as a goalie, we do, you know, we've talked about it before, Clint, you know, the kinetics of the human body, they don't mesh well with our position. Right. right. And we're talking of thousands and thousands of repetition on these unnatural, you know, human movements. And the stress that we put on our hips, our knees, all these joints. And, and you know, unless you've played the position, you really don't know. Um, but, you know, you, you went through it. And, and I give you so much credit for, you know, carving out this career you had after going through that at a young age. And, you know, it's, it really is a scary feeling. When your knee locks up, you, you don't, you're not in control. And, and for that moment where you just don't know what's going to happen. And it's, it's that the fear of the unknown. And it, it really is a terrifying feeling. Uh, that that and a puck to the throat where you can't oh. breathe for yeah for, oh yeah I've had those oh yeah and you're 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 going to my did I you know crush my windpipe am I going to suffocate here and all and then all of a sudden you start breathing a bit but it's scary it's real scary stuff I have Holly, a you remember that first time that happened to you yeah so Clint I was um I don't know if this is the one you're talking about Dwayne but it probably is I'm in practice I just got into Windsor Ryan Ellis the defenseman on Nashville yeah. um great guy great teammate. And for being a little guy, he could hammer the puck. So we're doing a drill, power play. As a little guy, I'm moving around looking for it. Um, they work it across the top, and it was a one-timer. So I went, uh, I went left to right and kind of into a butterfly without seeing it, just kind of trying to take up space. And it was a lower shot, but it had gotten tipped in front. I'm pretty sure it was by Cassian. He was awesome for being a big guy at tipping the puck. So about two feet in front of me, it didn't lose any speed. It came right up. And I'm in that butterfly block position, you know, uh, trying to keep my shoulders up. I didn't wear a dangler at the time. I just had a neck guard. But, and that didn't really do much. So that puck got tipped, caught me here. And honestly, yeah, Dwayne, I think it's the one I'm talking about. For yep. about 45 seconds, I couldn't breathe. I thought I was – so I ripped my stuff off. I skated hard. I ended up collapsing as soon as I got off the ice. And I, I thought my life was over at that point. I really thought, like, my windpipe was crushed. I had no idea. You have all these thoughts running through your head. Yep. And it, it slowly, you know, you start to regain your breath. And, but you're still panicked at the time. Oh, and yeah. that was one of the scariest moments of my career. And you really, you're right, because time slows down, but everything's moving so fast. And, and all these thoughts running through my head. Um, the price we pay for being goalies. And that's why I said <laughs> we are warriors on and off the ice. Well, we have yep. to be with the the position, uh, the the physical demands, and the mental and handling the pressure. Um, it, it's it's a it's a tough position. There's no doubt about it. I, I like yep. the uh, well. In my day, goalies would uh, it was the knee problems. 
because uh, just the way the game that now it's uh, hip problems because they play yep. so much down on their in the butterfly, but where the pads are designed, it's not hip friendly at all. Where you where, where the the torque is all on the hips, right? And uh, you know now goalies play you know on their knees basically. This podcast is brought to you by Mitt's Barbershop, created and owned by a true friend of the program, Justin Gritsky. Mitt's is a modern-day barbershop that provides a cool atmosphere featuring some of the greatest barbershops Buffalo has to offer. Come in, enjoy a free beer, play some video games, and get the best haircut in the area. When I asked Justin what sets Mitt's apart from the evil chain super-duper cuts that we see at every intersection, his answer says it all. My vision was to create the only true barbershop in Cheektowaga. When customers walked in, I wanted them to get that feeling they got when they strolled into the barbershops of old. The golden era of what a barbershop meant, not just a place to get your hair cut. So if you're looking for the real deal, come on down to Mitt's to get the real feel of what a true barbershop is and what it's supposed to be. The clear-cut top dog for all your haircutting needs. Look no further than Mitt's Barbershop. And when you mention that two goalies and one mic sent you in, receive $5 off your haircut that day. Talk about customer service at its finest. Located at 3461 Genesee Street in Cheektowaga, it is located right next door to the 33 Speakeasy Bar and Grill. Their phone number is 868-1424 and their hours are... Monday, 12 to 6, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, 10 a.m. to 7 p.m. On Saturday, they're open from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. and closed on Sundays because why not? Everybody deserves a little Sunday fun day. I want to finish this ad read off by reading a great testimonial from one of Mitt's loyal customers. Tired of the cookie-cutter salons trying to get your attention? Also tired of those men-focused salons? Then when you leave, you feel like you just visited a Supercuts for Men and the haircut isn't any better? Then Mitts is the place for you. Great cut, very professional, great atmosphere. A great place for men to get cut and trimmed up. I'm honestly a little sad I'm only visiting Buffalo because I need something like Mitts back home. You heard it here first. Come on down to Mitts for a great cut and an even better experience. We're happy to have them as a sponsor to the show, and we hope you join us in finding out what makes Mitts just so special. Thanks again to Justin and all the hard work him and his staff do. And without further ado, we'll kick it back to two goalies, one Mike. I, uh, you know, I can't, I can't believe I look, I look at old pictures of you Clint, and I see the equipment back then. And then you re, you tell you telling the story in your book about the, your favorite glove that your brother sent you when he was in his, uh, his pro days in the IHL, that Cooper glove, Cooper, Cully. Oh, first, I first, love first it. The, was old Cooper. the old yeah. Cooper. And, uh, it was, it was cool, Cooper but, GM 12. Yeah, oh, I, 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 teed, I, you know, I was teeing Cully up that because, you know, after, you know, you know, you, you, Cully, you know, your career, you know, when it ended like that isn't some easy to deal with mentally. And like, you know, you know, you, you dealt with your trials and your, and your, and your struggles with that too, because you kind of come to, you know, a point in life where, you know, you know, everything you've worked for is gone and not gone, but 
you know, now you have to decide to do something else with your life, but everything you've worked for up to this point was a hundred percent dedicated to making it in hockey. Yeah. And Clint, I, I, I go back to what you guys were talking about earlier when you're dealing with, with any kind of, you know, problem, physical or mental, you need a good support system. And I go back to using your platform, Clint, to raise awareness. And, and Dwayne, how you said, it's like looking in the mirror. So, so Clint, what you did is admirable in so many different ways because anybody that picked up your book and read it, anybody that heard you speak, just having that, just being able to identify with somebody that went through this and, and for you to be able to, to go through this and have the success that you did, it gives people you know, the strength or, or the, the belief that, you know, if, if he can get through it and seek to help it and, and, and get, get life back or learn how to manage this, it, it, it's so powerful. And in the countless num like numerous people that you've helped it, it just by, you know, presenting what happened to you and, and having the courage to write your book, it, it's, it's, and, and do the public speaking with your wife and, you know, connecting with these people because we've all, you know, anybody that, that has survived any, any of these, you know, trials and tribulations through, through mental illness, you need a good support system, no matter what. And, and like you, you had mentioned, um, you know, your wife being there and everybody around you, but I feel like Clint, what, what you've been able to do is, is give people, you know, become a part of their support system with, with, with your speaking and with your book. And, and Dwayne, like you mentioned, I, it, we identify as hockey players and we create this, um, I don't want to say persona, but this is really who we are. And, um, you know, I was, you know, I craved that structure of being on a team. And when it was taken from me, when I, when I eventually had, you know, after my last surgery and the doctor said, that's it, you, you know, you're, you're bone on bone, your tibia and your femur, you're like, this is not going to end well. Um, for two, three months, I was lost. And not to mention, I was being prescribed, um, you know, opiates, painkillers. And so, there's this void in my life that hockey had filled and it's a big one, right? Because I was mm -hmm. every, my daily routine was hockey, hockey, hockey. Even when I wasn't playing, I was doing something to better myself with hockey. Um, so there's this giant void in my life. And, you know, in those three months, I didn't know how to fill it. I ended up filling it with, with medicine. And although I was prescribed, although I was prescribed it by doctors, that doesn't mean it was any easier because we formed this dependence on it. And I thank, I thank God every day and my family for being there and helping me through it. My mom's a nurse. She was able to recognize that I was forming this dependence on the medicine and, um, you know, having to get through that. I was so, so grateful looking back that I was able to step right in and a huge shout out to, to Jeff Meredith and, and SUNY Fredonia for giving me that opportunity to, to coach in that first year I was back because it allowed me to be part of a team. It kept me, you know, it gave me that structure that I, I craved. And that's all I knew at that point. And, um, you know, I got my education through it, but in those months, looking back, it could have went sideways really quick. And we all have, you know, we all have our own journey, but at that point I had a huge void in my life that, you know, I was feeling with, with medicine prescribed to me just to feel normal. And that's a scary, scary road and a very slippery slope. Um, and I, and I go back to that support system that, that everybody needs and, and again, props to you, Clint, for, for having the courage to come out and tell your story and, and all the people that have, you know, heard you speak or, or, or read your book, you know, now can identify with, with some of the problems that you faced. And even if it isn't, you know, the, the specific battles that you faced, you know, we all face our own battles and, and knowing that you're not alone is, is such a big step towards recovery. That's the biggest thing, knowing that you're not alone because you think you're alone when you're going through it. You think you're 
uh, weak, um, you know, all these things, and whether it's addiction, mental illness, both, whatever, um, you know, then you, then you kind of go, well, there's other people there. I know there's other people, but they're not as bad as me. I'm, I'm one sick dude. And so you, you, you do it in silence because you don't want to be judged and, and, and with the stigma. So I think that's, that's what, you know, our main focus needs to be uh, on a, as a society is, is to understand that it's an illness and not a weakness. I mean, yes. you, you look at our toughest uh, people, in, in my view, is uh, military. Yeah. They're going to a job that, you know, you got to be mentally tough to do that job. And we got so many that come back uh, from the wars, uh, just from Afghanistan and Iraq alone. Uh, we were having 22 suicides a day by those those veterans of those wars. And, uh, you know, Vietnam put that in there, 250,000 suicide. I mean, these are, but these are those mentally tough people in the world. So my point is, it's illness. It's called PTSD with them. Yeah. And, um, you know, they come back and they're ill. They're not weak mentally, but they proved that by going to war. Laying their and, life on the line every day, seeing their brothers. I can't even imagine. Uh, and and yeah. I think part of the problem is, is we're constantly trying to compare ourselves to other people's struggles. And everybody's is unique. But with that being said, we... I think it's just so important for, for, to realize that we're not alone because when you suffer in silence, it makes everything so much worse. And, and I look back and, and, and just reaching out for help uh, was the biggest step. But, but before you get there, you, you feel like that's impossible. You, right. you, and there, like it, it also comes back to the stigma. Um, but, you know, I, I hope, I, I know we're, we're trending in the right direction, but for me, it's these people in the military have laid down their life, have sacrificed so much the least that we can do as a society, as their brothers and sisters, is to give them a, you know, that, you know, togetherness, that, that they're not alone. Give Support them the resources system. that they need. Yes. And, and you know, now the military is doing that. I mean, they're recognizing that they, they've got these, these uh, soldiers, men and women, that are definitely affected by PTSD. And they're getting them help now. Absolutely. And, and thank, thank the, goodness the double that. side of that is when they're, they're trained to be tough, to push through, to endure the elements, the, the, all this stuff, just be tough. And then we ask them to come back and okay, they got PTSD. A lot of them really struggle now because now they're going to therapy and it's really hard for them to open up because their training is no, right. You push it, you, you, no you weakness. You don't, don't talk about it. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm grateful for you to even open up to us and, and to share this stuff, um, because if we could help one person from listening to this podcast and, and give right. them the strength to open up, then, then we, we've accomplished whatever we've set out to do. And uh, that means a ton to me. Um, so, Dwayne, I, I wanted to kick it back to, to some of the, the playing career. Did you have anything else that you want to touch on on this? No, just the one last thing, too, is you guys were, you know, uh, kind of dealing with it too. Like I remember one instance, um, cause they, after my junior, my two years in junior college, you know, I didn't put the pads back on for about five, five years. Since it was. And it's funny too. Cause I had bought, my dad had got me brand new pillows, all, all nice new Reebok gear. And they sat in my basement for five years. I mean, he's used them twice. Um, I just had no, it, you know, I had some fun in junior college, but it was, it was, you know, remembering what kind of happened the four years previous to that was really just kind of put a really bad taste. Yeah. Yeah. It was bad. And 
I came into coaching uh, through a friend, uh, my buddy Joey Castrino, uh, was coaching the the high school team where I played, and uh, you know he he wanted to bring me on to be a, be an assistant coach, and I you know I thought about it, and then one one thing that really struck a chord with me because I, I, on the side with that I was another coach on the team also coached uh, a, a, a Depew Saints team with his kids who were also on the, the team. And I remember I went, I'll give him a hand, you know, every now and then. So I went to the rink and one of the kids on the team asked about me. He was like, oh, you're, you're, coach, you're Dwayne Steinel. And I'm like, yeah, He's like, you're the guy that got urinated on the shampoo bottle. And I'm like, I was like, I was like, it has been how many years? And I still got to deal with this. And it was just like, honestly, right then, it was kind of like a turning point for me because it, it was like, man, like, I, how much longer am I going to keep dealing with this? It, yeah. it was just like, you know, this, this constant. And like I said, I, de- I still deal with like certain things today because I'm, I haven't gotten, you know, diagnosed or anything like that. Like I, sometimes I have trouble sleeping and, you know, I deal with anxieties and stress, and, you know, spats of depression and stuff like that. And my dad, you know, God bless him, like, you know, not to throw him under any bus and that, but you know, he's, he's one of those guys, you know, he's, he doesn't understand it. And, you know, I, you opened up, I opened up to him once and he just, you know, he just, he didn't get it. Cause he was just like, you know, you know, you don't seem, you don't seem depressed. It's like, yeah, because people like, like you said, Clint, you're a great actor. You're a good actor. And you know, you hide things, you hide things for a long time. And that's what I kind of, what I've always done. And when that kid said that, I looked at it, I'm like, you know what? I said, you know, I'm not going to, I, I haven't played the game in how long, um, I've just started now. I still watched it, but like I, I, I'm back involved. I'm starting to fall in love with it again. And, you know, I just like, you know, I'm not going to let this kid chase me away from something I'm enjoying doing. And it was kind of right then and there. I said to myself, you know what? I can't allow people, any kids to go through what I went through anymore, at least on this one team, on this one team. And, you know, we were blessed for, you know, eight years to have a good, good groups of kids. You know, once, once in a while you had a kid that was, you know, you know, you know, the clown or whatever, you know, acted out, but we were blessed. But like, that was my goal right then and there. It wasn't just to like win on the ice. It was just to create better individuals off the ice to go through life and just be good people rather. Cause I thought that was more important than anything is if you could rub, if you could rub your rub, rub yourself off and, you know, and improve their character and guide them the right way. That felt better to me than winning any championship or any trophy or, any any success on the ice well Dwayne um you know you shared a little more in depth before the show uh yeah. with, with, with what all went and happened to you and I don't want to diagnose you <laughs> I'm a doctor but it's an honorary doctorate um yes. but that was traumatic and and the fact that how many years later it comes up again and caused anxiety caused whatever um like I said I don't want to diagnose you but I bet you that traumatic time that you went through and plus your mother dying and that you know we all we all go through traumatic experiences not everybody gets ptsd but i think most people have a degree of ptsd for sure and you know you're probably going yeah no wonder i get anxious or no wonder i can't sleep i can't sleep Uh, about a year ago i was having flashbacks those nightmares started coming back with the skate coming up and uh me trying to get out of the way and i wake straight up in bed and you know panic so i'm reliving trauma again how many what 30 years later and so it never goes away i i went and did this thing called emdr eye movement desensitization reprocessing and i did three sessions and i haven't had a a flashback or nightmare since 
So that's something, you know, anybody that uh, thinks they might be struggling with, you know, some sort of trauma in their life, that EMDR, like anything, it's not for everybody, you know, like some people refuse medication, whatever, but it's worth checking out. And it's, it's, it's real simple. Uh, worked wonders with me. I mean, I was wake, I was screaming in my sleep and my wife's going, what is wrong with you? <laughs> no, but it, I'm happy you brought that up because there's so many different resources that are available now that weren't back then. And you go into so much detail in, in your Player Tribune article. And I really recommend anybody listening, please go read it. It's such a powerful piece. And, and I'm sure that the, the book too is, is just an extension of that. And, and one quote in that really struck me because we, we, we talked about the stigma and not wanting to get help. Um, and I'm just going to read a quick blurb from it just so everybody can hear it. Um, and you mentioned that there wasn't any counseling to be had back then. And here's your quote. You know what? Though I probably would have refused it if it had been available back then, I'd become a hero to my family, my friends, and thousands of hockey fans across the world. I wasn't about to jeopardize that by showing any weakness. I was also afraid that if I spoke up, some doctor would diagnose me and find that I was crazy because back then I was really starting to feel like I was crazy and I was yeah. scared to have someone confirm it. I was worried about losing my career. And it's so powerful because we have this stigma that if we reach out, we could lose everything. When in, in reality, it's, it's almost the opposite. It is, that is the first step in our journey towards recovery. No matter what you're dealing with, it, it, it's taking that first step. And, and there's so many resources. Like you'd mentioned the, the eye movement desensitization therapy. This stuff works wonders. And, and for me, it was a simple breathing exercise that helped me kind of, I don't want to say control my anxiety, but it, it helped me manage it to a point where it wasn't overcoming. It wasn't I, I could start to manage bits and pieces of it so I could start to, to solve the, the bigger problem. And I, I, I really give you so much credit, uh, Clint, for, for everything that you, you opened up and talked to, because that sure isn't easy. And especially with a traumatic, you know, event like that. Um, and I don't want to make you, you relive that, but just going through that, that scenario. Um, I remember growing up, I was, you know, a young kid at the time, if, if, you know, if I wasn't still in diapers, you know, but having something like most people have traumatic experiences and, and we all try to compare it, but it's not right to, you know, trauma is trauma is trauma. And, and, but for you that, I mean, I, like I said, I don't want to put you back through it, but what was, you know, the aftermath and having 300 plus stitches and, and, you know, waking up at Buffalo General, I mean, can you just kind of give us a quick overview of, of how that, you know, played out and, and how you were able to recover from that? Because just the fact that you're sitting here talking to us today, I, I think speaks volumes about your character and your mental toughness and, and the support system you have. Well, you know, definitely that, that changed my life, that accident. Um, I thought I was going to die. I, I prepared for death. I told the trainer, call my mom, another trainer, hold my hand. Um, you know, and I was, I was, you know, saying my prayers and, you know, expecting to die. So that was my trauma. But it, you know, what was crazy is, um, because I came back so quick, like 10 or 11 days, days yeah. Buffalo loved me. They absolutely, loved me. they, they just thought what this guy, he just almost died. And now he's back playing as soon as Warrior. the station came out. Yeah. And, uh, I wrote that love and, and support and adrenaline for the rest of the season, <clears throat> it was the next season that, you know, after all that kind of wears off that I started to uh, have the nightmares, the panic attacks, anxiety, uh, depression, my obsessive compulsive disorder was never diagnosed, but uh, I, it was hard for me to leave the house. Uh, all these things just exploded and that's what trauma will do to you. And that kind of set me up for 
uh, a long journey, but uh, eventually I got well. Yeah, with the help of that uh, that wife of yours, Joni, who's been you know a saving grace for you. Couple yeah. questions, Joni. What a, what an awesome person. Everything that that I, it's been presented to me, and the fact that she's been side by side with you through the public speaking engagements and you know writing these books. You know what? What an awesome lady. I just, yeah. what an awesome human being. Just the fact that, you know, how tough she must be. And, and you know, we're all for, I think behind every great goalie, behind every great person, there, there's an awesome mother, an awesome wife, somebody there to, to, to not only hold us together, but to give us the strength and support that, that we need in our darkest times and our darkest hours. And it's just awesome to, to, to learn more about her and, and your journey. And, you know, what an incredible woman. Thank you. Thank you. I've, I've had some good, good support throughout, you know, one of my biggest supporters through the worst, worst times of my life was Rick Dudley, you know, former Sabres player, coach. Um, you know, when I got sent to the minors, he, he wanted me um, and picked me up and, and he's the one, my first game in the minors, um, you know, I, my play declined pretty bad anyways, but the first period I let in uh, four goals on the six shots. And I'm like, oh my, and so I get pulled and I sat on the bench with a towel over my head and just bawled. I couldn't believe, I can't even play in the minors. I just was seeing everything, my career just, so I went into Rick, uh, he was our coach. And I said, Rick, I, I'm retiring. I can't do this, this pressure, this everything. I'm I just not functioning. Rick was under the impression that um, I was doing well, that I had medication. And, and the thing was, I wasn't doing well at all. I had hope every time they give me a new medication, I had hope that, Oh, this is going to be. And, uh, obviously, so Rick said, you know what, we'll get you into a, a, a good doctor. And I said, Rick, I've seen doctors for two and a half years in Buffalo specialists, you know, different medications, everything. So the next day he calls me up. He says, I got you an appointment at this, uh, uh, this, uh, I think it was, uh, some university in Southern California. Um, anyways, this guy ended up being the, the answer. I mean, he said, you're, he's the first guy that told me, you know what, you, you got a chemical imbalance of the brain. And I'm like, yeah, no shit. I'm a goalie. <laughs> no, he goes, no, like a diabetic's a chemical imbalance, but it's a pancreas. You're, you're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. And he gave me a prescription and it takes time for those drugs to kick yeah. in. And at, at least six a weeks, six weeks, I was just like, is this what it feels like to be normal? But you know what, Rick Dudley does, he, he never gave up on me. He never, you know, he supported me all of that. And he's the one that uh, got me my first NHL coaching, goalie coaching job. He was a GM in Florida. Um, you know, when I was very suicidal at one point, um, he flew, he was the assistant uh, GM in Chicago. And he dropped everything and flew out to my ranch here. I mean, that's a, you know, he's an NHL executive dropping all his duties to come see me and help me. That's unbelievable. What an awesome guy. And, and that speaks volumes of his character, because like you said, it's not like he's a retiree just sitting around for him to, it just shows, how, you know, that relationship and how much he cares um, to be able to do that and how important that was to you looking back on it. Right. And um, an incredible, incredible story about how he, he's supporting you. And, you know, I'm sure that played a big role in, in helping, you know, get to where you are today. Yeah. Well, you know, you guys mentioned he, he might be uh, up for maybe assistant GM. Uh, he, doesn't, great. he doesn't care about a title, but he'd be a, he'd be a guy that was, he's an excellent scout. His reputation is unbelievable. Impeccable. Uh, impeccable. Yeah. Impeccable. 
And uh, I would, I'd be really happy to, to see him. You know, he, he, he just loves the game. He sees more games than anybody. Uh, he really can uh, analyze players and, and pick out talent. And he's just a smart, smart hockey man. And he's a good, good person, too. He's got a lot of compassion. And I'm not the only one that, uh, that he's helped. I mean, Rick is, you know, we try to pass it forward, and that's what I try to do. But Rick's helped other players, too. And, uh, it, it, you know, no one really hears about that. No. So I'm, I, I try to give him as much accolades as I can because he's, he was there for me as a teammate. We played together, too, in the American League. It sounds like – and the reason why I, I would love to see him in, in our organization is because it sounds like he rubs off – he makes everyone around him better, and exactly. not just as an athlete because it, it goes so much deeper than that. Yeah. And your story speaks volumes to what I what I'm trying to what I'm trying to say is when you have somebody like that in an executive position and they're constantly helping people become better, that rubs off and and it's like uh, well they know, say shit shit runs downhill, but so does yeah. praise and good things, you know. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So he, 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 he you're not going to find a harder worker. He sets that example, um, you know, the dedication, all those things. It does rub off. And what do they say? It starts at the top, right? Right. And, uh, you know, I, I, I was kind of saddened to hear that, uh, that uh, Tim Botterell got, you know, canned there because I met him at the 90s uh, night when I came in January to Buffalo. And he was just a wonderful, really nice man. But um, mm -hmm. they're, going through, they're going through it there. I mean, it's been a long time with the Sabres now. And uh, so where are we now? Are we starting over again? Or Ralph Kruger's a good coach, quality man. Um, yes, very well spoken. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's a, he's a good guy too. So I, I have seems, no. Go ahead, Collie. Go ahead. No, I, I was just going to say quickly. I I have faith. I I'm a big believer that that communication goes a long way, right? And and whenever you have, you know, whenever they're you're unsuccessful, I feel like not to simplify it, but it goes back to communication. Whether it's you know a GM to an assistant GM, a GM to a coach, a coach to a player, a coach to an assistant coach. If you can communicate well. It, you know, it's not going to solve all your problems, but it, you're going to be going in the right direction. And obviously it's tough when, when, you know, we're constantly starting over and, and, you know, three years and another GM. And, but I truly believe, and, and I, I hope I'm right here that Ralph Kruger is, is the right man for the job because I was struck right away by how good of a communicator he was. And yeah. it's not just his words, his nonverbal cues. And, and you know, I, I don't know how to explain it other than seeing this man communicate just to, to the media. It, I can, I wish I could be a fly on the wall for some of his player meetings because, you know, I'm a firm believer in positive reinforcement and we're starting to see that transition into hockey and into all sports that, you know, Clint, when you grew up and even Dwayne in our earlier parts of your career, it was a lot of negativity, a lot of screaming, a lot of, you did this wrong, you did this wrong, you know, don't do that. Where, when I try to coach, it's okay. You may have done this wrong, but let's try this, right? Or hey, that was excellent. Let's let's keep let's bring that to the forefront. Let's let's continue. Find positives. Yes, yeah. and I feel like Ralph does a great job with that. I could be wrong, but from what I've seen, you know, he not only uses positive reinforcement the way it should be, um, but he's a, he's a critical thinker, and and the way he you know approaches problems, I think is 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 a sight for sore eyes here. And I think it's going to be you know it's tough to gauge after one year, right? But um, from from you know. All the indicators that I've seen, it's it's he he could be the right man for the job, and I'm I'm holding out hope that that he's part of the solution. Well, I think he is. I, I as, as I don't know the man personally. I've met him once, but uh, 
Um, I've heard nothing but great things about him. And you talk about that communication part and also the, the positive affirmations you mentioned. Yeah. You know, being goalies, I mean, we're tough on ourselves. The scoreboard and that red light behind us is pretty tough on us too. Yep. I mean, what a position. It's a, it's a tough, tough position. And it's very, very easy to lose your confidence, like quick. And yep. confidence is everything uh, in sports, in, in life probably. But in that goaltending job, it's huge. If you don't have that confidence, uh, boy, you, you're, 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 you're going to struggle. And so those positive affirmations from a coach are very, very, very important because we're hard enough on ourselves. And we know, I think it was Jacques Plante or somebody was quoted as saying, we've got the only job in the world where when you make a mistake, there's a red light flashing behind you and yep. people cheering, right around you. cheering or booing. And uh, I mean, you, you think if you go to an office job and you make a mistake, there's no red light. You don't have, if you make a mistake in the office and you don't have 20,000 people. Yeah. That was, I remember that quote too. I think I read it. Yeah. At a, uh, I was on the bus and junior reading that book and, you know, it really hit home for me because, you know, in saying that it was such a powerful quote that you had mentioned. I don't know what the exact quote is, but you're right. You make a mistake at your desk job. You're not going to have 20,000 people booing or, or cheering for you. Right. So, um, also he was, he was a brilliant man and uh, really, really yeah. interesting, really interesting cat. Yeah. What, when I, when I, uh, you know, cause it's always, and I've talked about with this with Kali is I feel like it, maybe it's, it's, it's better today, but at least back when me and Kali played, like, you know, head coaches didn't really know how to handle goaltenders. Like, nope. you know, you know what I mean? Like they just didn't know. They didn't understand the position, the, the, the mental traumas we go through, the, the pressure we put ourselves under. And I, I went to a, you know, when I was coaching, I, you know, I, I try and, Try, would try to go to clinics and USA hockey ran uh, specifically for a goalie coach clinic ran by Phil Sayer from USA hockey. And one of the things they said was, um, you know, a player has a bad shift. You can go back to the bench and they, and they can, they can pump your tires back up. They put their hands in your back. When you're in that, you're out there alone. You might look at, you might look to the bench for reassurance from the coach, hoping for something like you might get nothing. And it's, you know, it's, it's a different, it's a different position, man. And you said it in your book, Clint, and I, and I was text corresponding texting you with earlier. The only position I've said that, Kelly, how many times you heard me say this? The only position in my opinion in sports that hold that much pressure as a goalie is a pitcher in baseball, because you could have 10 minutes in a bad period and you can lose the game in those 10 minutes. You could have one bad inning and give up eight runs and the game's lost because of you. That's an enormous amount of pressure for one person on a team full of how many players to put themselves under and that's why like you know like you know you know with coaches back then it was just like you know what's what's the problem stop the puck you know what are you doing <laughs> get get out of your get out of your net you're not far out of here you're too deep in your net you know what are, you, what are you doing why did you see that guy it's like it's like you, you don't understand how much is happening in front of you in the matter of seconds to be able to take all that information and just you know cycle yeah. it through and make the proper decisions and if you even make even if you make the right decision, if you don't make the right decision, you know, a half a second earlier and, and, and the puck goes in that, it's all on you. Even though, even though you knew it was coming, it may not matter if you were cooking up. Maybe you just didn't recognize that early enough. And then it's in the back of your net and everyone's looking at you like you're the asshole. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Gord, Gord Downey from the Tragically Hip said it best. It's the lonely end of the rink, right? It is. Yeah. 
we don't have that luxury of, of going back to the dugout or going to the sideline or even going back to the bench. And, and I feel like goalies have to be a, a different kind of mentally tough. You're, you're and, just standing uh, there. Everybody's looking at you, the fans, yep. coaches, across the arms. Chanting your, chanting your last name. <laughs> I, I remember. Colin, Colin, you Colin, suck. You suck. You suck. Yeah, I've heard that way too many times. Um, I, but no, I, I, going back to it, any young goalies listening to this show, the biggest difference in my career, I went from getting cut from my high school, Clint had five different teams going in there. You know, my brother had played there four years as a starter. I think I was a bit arrogant going in thinking that it was going to be handed to me, but the best thing that ever happened to me is I was cut from all the four top teams. I was placed on the lowest team. And it was in that, that year that, you know, I considered quitting, but that, that wasn't an option. I, I began to see a sports psychologist and through different things and the breathing exercises made a, a world of difference. I started to do mental imagery, some positive self-talk. I, I had my ABCs, mine were active hands, white ice, be a warrior. And, you know, through different positive self-talk, the mental imagery and the breathing, like I said, it made such a, a big difference. In that 12-month period, I went from being cut from all the top four teams, being placed on the lowest team. The next year, I was the starter on the top team, and I got invited to Team USA and ended up playing for Team USA. And, and I go back to all I did. That, that, that The only thing that really changed was my mental approach and seeking some help, outside help and what a difference that made. So, yep. Clint, was that something outside of – you know, coming through, I know it wasn't as, as popular as it is now, but did you ever, you know, incorporate any of those things into your game later in your career? Or did you ever have the opportunity to see a sports psychologist? Well, uh, we didn't have sports psychologists back then, at least if, I think they were just starting maybe to hire them. But uh, I was playing in the American League, and we didn't have a very good team. And I'd, I'd get 50 shots a game, and I it was rookie of the year. I'd just be standing on my head. But every time I got called up to the NHL, it was Quebec. Um, you know, I played okay, you know, but not to the level I was down there. And I thought I had to think about, it. I thought, what is, why, you know, the puck is the same. Yeah. It's a little quicker up here, but you know, and, and so I, um, I don't know how I did it. I, I came across a book called sports psyching and it was one of the first, if, if not the first real sports, uh, mental, uh, building skills book and what I liked about it was it gave a kind of a six-week course uh you know week one you do this mental you know relaxation breathing was part of it tensing your muscles and relaxing so you do that and you only did it about 20 minutes a day and then in in week two you graduated from that you still did a bit of that but then you graduated into things like uh mental imagery before a game and then it by the by the time you're done you got this whole sequence of, of things that you can use in a game, before a game, after a game. Uh, but like, let's say you get scored on and you're, you're a little bit rattled. So it taught you how to, you, you don't have a whole lot of time, but how to mentally rehearse. Do, 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 do the muscle tension, couple deep breaths, and then mentally rehearse, you know, three, four, five times, whatever time allows before the faceoff of you making that save. And then you kind of just tuck it away. Yep. You know, and then after the game, you can revisit it in a more detailed uh, mental imagery of making that save. And one thing was in, in that book too, it taught you to 
um, imagine um, you can smell the popcorn, you can smell the arena, you get, you, you feel, and it, it would tip tell you to bring on all that nervousness, all that anxiety, all that stuff. Then you do the things that you've learned, like the muscle clench, the deep breathing, yeah. and, and the mental imagery. So it was a wonderful book. And I, I, I say this, I, that book made me from an American League hockey player to an NHL hockey league player. And again, it's going back to what you guys are saying, mental skills. And yes, it's becoming more and more prevalent now. I mean, I think every team has a sports psychologist and um you know it, it, it's it but it's so important especially for goalies just as much mental as it is physical this podcast is brought to you by better biscuit better biscuit is a hockey training tool designed to help you develop your game these fiberglass reinforced pucks are developed to handle less than perfect surfaces enabling hockey players of all ages to practice their skills in their driveway basement or schoolyard honing their skills whenever and wherever possible. It comes in two different styles. The Better Biscuit Sniper helps players develop forehand, backhand, one-touch, saucer, drop passing, and shooting, ideal for perfecting those toe drags, puck control, and stick handling. The other option is the Better Biscuit Passer. The passer will help you develop softer hands and help you become more accurate with your passes and stick handling. will also help you improve your puck possession confidence for any skill level. Be sure to check out Better Biscuit at betterbiscuit.net for all your hockey training needs. Thanks again for all your support, and be sure to check out Better Biscuit. Now back to the show. Absolutely. Well, hey, no, no. before before we finish no, up, no, sorry, go no, ahead. Mental. <laughs> yeah, if the, I, if 98% mental, eh? No. Yeah. Um, Clint, I really wanted to talk to you before before we – before we run out of time, so your journey to the NHL, right? And, mm-hmm. you know, you mentioned a little bit earlier going from Portland, um, getting drafted by Quebec. Now, what was that like, you know, hearing your name called in, in your first NHL camp? And I, I guess I'm more curious. I, I've been a big proponent of, of Quebec getting another team, not only because yep. I love the jerseys, but just because, you know, I, I've been to Montreal. I, I've been to Quebec City when I was younger, but it just felt like that's a whole different different type of hockey culture and I'm I'm fascinated by it so what was that like going in there in 81 82 um and and, you know really seeing that for the first time because you know I I spent a lot of time you know playing in Ontario uh I always thought you know the Western League was was the toughest league you know you have these big strong defensemen some really talented goalies and you know the 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 skilled forwards too but they had a a breed of toughness I look at the OHL it's kind of a, a mix of both you have some you know high-level forwards and some puck moving D, and then you go to the Quebec League, and, and there's a different kind of, uh, you know, feel to the game there. Uh, and, you know, obviously some really talented goaltenders came coming out of the province of Quebec. What was it like, you know, just playing there and, and you know, being a Western Canadian guy going to the opposite side of the, the, you know, the country? You know, what was that like, and how did you enjoy your time in Quebec? It, it, was, um, it was hard because of the, the, the uh, language barrier. So it was really hard, and I'd say probably ninety percent of our team was was French Canadian, and so a lot of the the talking in the locker room was in French, and I couldn't speak a word of French. To so pas français. Yeah, that was hard. It was a big adjustment, but uh, like you were leading into on the hockey, oh my God, they just are they're 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 nuts. They're passionate. They're they yeah. just crazy. Love the game. Uh, you know, I always feel bad for them because the year after they lost their franchise to uh, Colorado, Colorado won the cup. Yeah. 
and they had some pretty pretty tough years there before that so they kind of endured but that that building was always full always full I I I would like to see a team go back there as well Me too. you know you know oh. I, I it would it would be fantastic it's a small market but so is Winnipeg and Winnipeg is sold out so is Buffalo yeah yeah so I I so looking back at you know going through your hockey DB you know you spent time in Quebec um you know, you, you, you get sent down to the American League. Um, you played well there. And, you know, going back and forth for the first, you know, four years of your career, it looks like, you know, 85, 86, you really step in and, and you played 40-some games, you know, just having the success there. Um, and then transitioning, how'd you end up in Washington? Was it a trade or was it free agency? I always tell everybody, especially my kids when they were younger and, and knew who Joe Sackett was, I told mm-hmm. them I was traded for Joe Sackett. Yeah, <laughs> because what it was was uh, I didn't go into detail, but it was uh, myself, Dell Hunter, some draft picks uh, to Washington for a first round draft pick, which ended up being uh, Quebec's Joe Sackett, and he went on to have a brilliant career. And so I always I'd say so. Hang my head, tell oh, everybody sure. I was trading again. <laughs> not, not, no. not, not, not bad compensation for that. Right now. Now, Clint, like I'm just, I, I, I wanted to remember to bring this up as uh, flipping through the uh, few pages that I marked in the book. When you came into Quebec, Dale Hunter was on the team, correct? Yep, yep. Dale Hunter, you guys became pretty good yep. friends, and you guys were still yep. like one of the only uh, English, you know, speaking guys in the team. So you guys kind of became close. Yep, yep. Um, not a bad guy to you know to be to befriend on your first on your first you know time in the NHL too. But one of the things I wanted to make me laugh was one of the goalies in your first training camp that you were competing with, uh, Plasse? Is that how you pronounce it? Uh, Plas. Plas. Okay, I'm sorry. I apologize. I'm, I'm going to put the French on it, Cully. Blaine's giving it the French spin, eh? I yeah, love it. The French. <laughs> Made Plas. me laugh hard, and Cully, you'll get a kick out of this, is uh, during one of the preseason games, he came to the bench, and he forgot to pull a pack of cigarettes out of his, what was his locker, and he no. gave it to the train because he would put... smoke in between periods. Yeah, he put them in his pads. Oh, is it his pads? Yeah. He pulls out a pack and, of smokes. Uh, I think it was Dan Dan Bouchard uh, played the first half of that game, and yeah. I think because it was a preseason game, so Placer goes in there to play the – and after a couple of whistles, he skates to the bench and pulls out his smokes and gives them to the trainer. And <laughs> oh, this, my God. Yeah, a pack of smokes and the lighter in there. That's, That's incredible. Unbelievable. Man. Oh, man. So I've, oh. Heard, I've heard certain stories about how uh, – Maybe it was Mario Lemieux had a, had a special like a uh, hallway leading from the locker room out to the back, uh, back of the, like the back door. So he could hack a dart in between periods. Yeah, there was, there was, there was five or six smokers on our team in Quebec. I, I remember. Uh, Andre my, Dupont. Yeah. My first training camp, he was on the bike. I walk into the testing room where the testing wasn't big back then, but they, we did it and he's on the bike and he's a heavy set guy. And I didn't know who he was. And he's speaking French, and everybody's laughing at him. He had a dart hanging from his mouth. <laughs> and, uh, and I go, who is that? Is he? I thought he was a trainer calibrating the bikes for testing. And they go, no, that's our captain, Moose DuPont. And he was smoking while riding the bike for his, his cardio test. <laughs> <laughs> that's incredible, man. Oh, if that he was to hear story. He used to hear stories in Buffalo about the French connection, smoking darts outside the odd or in the locker oh, yeah. room, like Rick Barnes, yeah. and Gilbert Perot, and Rene Robert. Like that's 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 amazing. 
<laughs> to me, it's incredible that these men, you know, we know now, we know more now of, you know, how much damage that does to our, our lung capacity. But when you're talking about such a, a, an intense cardiovascular sport yeah. and their ability to turn it on for these, you know, I want to say 45 seconds to a minute and a half of absolute, you know, balls to the walls, their ability to do this at, at the highest level in the world while still smoking a pack a day or whatever it was, that just to me speaks volumes of how incredible these guys were. Well, not just a pack a day, but between periods. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, instead of the protein shakes or whatever, they, the recovery drinks now, they were, you know, kicking back a six pack, you know, with a couple darts in between. Well, we always had uh, uh, beer in a fridge for after the game. Everybody, you know, um, sit in the hot tub, have a beer or two. And that's incredible. Yeah. That's incredible. So there's another I, good, there's another good story in his book about a hot uh, <laughs> involving a hot tub. <laughs> I sent you, I sent you that one, Cully. Oh, with Miss McGill. I took a picture. Me. I took a picture and sent him that 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 part, Cully. I said it's it's uh, tea with Mrs. McGill 2.0. <laughs> That's incredible, man. Oh, I. You know what? I always say that I would have not just because the way I played, because I, I I wasn't a traditional butterfly goalie. I love to stack the pads. But just the off the ice stuff, I felt like I was probably two decades uh, too late. You know, you yeah. throw me back into the 70s, 80s, I would have been a Hall of Famer. Uh, there you go. But um, so I wanted to touch on, you know, well, really quick. I, Dale Hunter, I, I played for, you know, Windsor. So London Knights were, you know, a hell of an organization. I have a tremendous amount of respect for the Hunter brothers um, and what they were able to build in London. But that was, for me, such a, such a crazy place to play. Um, you know, my first time playing in front of, you know, 9,000 plus people and some really great fans in that building. It's like a mini NHL rink. Um, yeah. but the hunters, you know, they, they have this respect to their program and it's almost like the game the, they, they won the mental battle. You, you give a team too much respect, they're going to shove it down your throat. Um, you know, it's cool that you got to play with him, but I wanted to ask you about coming into Buffalo in, in 88, 89, um, you know, what was that like? You touched on how, you know, you love the fans of Buffalo. And I think that, you know, we pride ourselves on that, you know, being a passionate fan base. And that's why it's so tough to see, you know, the, the stretch of you no know, playoffs here for such such a long time. You know, but what was that like? And, and, and how did you, you know, playing for, you know, Quebec and Washington, two good franchises. What was the difference just coming into Buffalo? Well, I, I, it was more of a, like, especially compared to Washington. Uh, it, was, it was such a hockey culture in, it was more like Quebec in Buffalo, you know, very passionate fans, uh, people, you know, live for, for their, their teams. Right. So, and, and being, being that close to Canada, you know, you get hockey night in Canada on TV, which I grew up with. So that was kind of cool to watch games and, and, and that, but it, it was, uh, and then you got the winters, you know, real, real winters, hockey winters. Yeah. You know? And, and I love that. I, I love to, you know, there's times I go to bed and I get up and go to practice in the morning, open the door and there's a foot of snow Yeah. Over, overnight, you know, and a lot of people wouldn't like that. I loved it. And I, I guess when you're younger, you embrace that stuff, but uh, yeah, that was cool. I, I mean, it was, it was a hockey uh, environment, very, very hockey environment. Now Quebec probably would, would rival that pretty good. But the thing is when you don't speak the language, you don't get the whole, the whole deal you know no for sure and it's I can't imagine I haven't spent too much time uh but when I got closer to Kingston you know closer to you know the French speaking 
it, it's it's so tough with the language barrier. Actually, a better example would be I played with some some Russians and and some European players, and, and I I took a lot of pride being a leader helping them. But it made me appreciate you know how lucky I was to speak the native language because these guys, on top of you know acclimating to a whole different game because the North American game is so different than, you know, the bigger rinks and how they play over there. But, you know, the, the little stuff of being able to order food, you know, knowing yeah. what you're eating and, and that is, so I give you a lot of credit for being able to, you know, break into the NHL in a French speaking city, because a lot of people take for granted the little things that, that you get from being a native speaker. Well, there's a lot of things that happen. I mean, um, you know, if I needed a plumber, I called a plumbing company and they don't speak, uh, any English. So I called the team, uh, say, I need a plumber. Can you organize it? And then they would call a plumber and, and have it come. But it's funny how, how it was there because, you know, there's some prejudice both ways, obviously. For sure. But, um, I, I had situations where they couldn't speak, uh, uh, any English and then they find out you're a Quebec Nordique and they speak English. <laughs> oh, that's incredible. Uh, no, 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 hable English. And then all of a sudden, oh, you play for the Nordiques. How's it going? Uh, yeah, we can have it going. <laughs> oh, that's incredible. Can I, uh, can I get an autograph? Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I, uh, um, but, you know, with, with, with that, um, you know, playing, playing in Buffalo, um, oh, I had that thought in my head and I just lost it. Damn that's it, Cully, I just lost it. That's a goalie thing. The goalie <laughs> thing, yeah. taking enough pucks to the head where, you know, temporary memory lapses just become yeah. a mind. Part of our daily routine now. Yeah, hey, I just was, had it, too. Was, it gets Wait. worse, trust me. <laughs> well, I, I just Wayne, what do you think it. of it? Clint, I wanted to ask you. I'm a father myself. I have two young girls. Um, and, and, you know, being a dad is incredible. Um, so, you know, for you, you know, having kids, have they gone into hockey at all? Uh, my son did. Yeah. Um, but you know, he's, he's, uh, you know, grown now he's, you know, left the game and that, but you know, he didn't really pursue it that hard. I mean, uh, I get frustrated. I, I get frustrated with him because I had such a great work ethic and yes, part of it was the OCD. I'm sure like we were talking about the butterflies and practice and doing all those things. I can't remember the number, but I think I had to do a hundred up and down. So I do them in sets of 10 or 20, and during practice, like when the play's at the other end or the drill and I'm not getting shots, I'd be constantly doing up and downs, knees up, knees down, knees up, and yeah. or side to side, post to post. I was, I had, and my OCD, you know, I was counting how many I would uh, have to do during practice. Right. And the punishment I, I, I put on my knees probably doing those up and downs, oh. up and downs, I mean, you know, I, I can hear my knees. I'm like Forrest Gump. Everybody says, you run? I run. Are you going to be like Forrest Gump? You see my knees explode. Yeah. Uh, I'm the same way. I can't, I can't do anything that involves impact. Like biking is okay, but like I running, even golf, like just walking. I, I need a cart when I golf because every yeah, day I can't walk and golf. Uh, the clicking on my knees I and I can physically hear that so when I hang out with a buddy and I go to get up after sitting on the couch and they can hear it and and they're like what was that I'm like oh no it's just my tibia and my femur they're just saying hello to each other it's fine my, my last uh oh yeah I got snap crackle and pop going yeah. big <laughs> the old but, rice krispies yeah but I remember my last uh knee surgery was in buffalo uh it was during the off season like right, right when the season ended and I remember the doctor coming in after and he goes, how old are you? And I said, 33. He goes, ooh, you got the arthritis of a 78-year-old man. 
I'm like, oh, oh my god! And he predicted I would need uh, knee replacements. were big back then. I think they were just starting. Yeah. And and uh, he said you're gonna you're gonna probably need both your knees replaced. And you know, so far, uh, I mean, they hurt a bit, they ache a bit, but I'm nowhere near thinking of a of a knee surgery or a knee replacement. Yeah. The cold temperatures of Buffalo probably didn't help that one either. I loved it. I loved the Buffalo climate. It was awesome. Yeah. I remember, and now the point I was going to bring up, actually, now I remember, is uh, Cully probably got it worse than we did. And obviously, you weren't here for it, but when we got hit with that October storm, oh, oh my God. I remember looking out my dad's front bay window, man. He had trees all across the front yard. We got so much snow. It was yeah, like a heavier wet snow. Over two days? Yeah, and I was literally watching, and we had all these trees. You would hear the crack and then branch fall. Crack, branch fall. Crack, branch fall. You would see 10 branches fall within a matter of 30 seconds right in front of you. That's how heavy it got. And I remember that, like, two-week period, Cole, like I said, you probably got it worse than we did in Chitawaga. Chitawaga is still south, but not as south as Hamburg. Um, but we got we got tortured. I remember we were in secluded in our houses for, like, a week. You literally had to get, like, a snowmobile if you wanted to go to top supermarkets or anything like that to go get food. Well, that and, epic storm they had in the 70s, guys were trying to get to the rink for oh, a yeah. And they're going on snowmobiles and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And I remember I, I remember um, listening to the Sabres play the Red Wings. I think it was the Red Wings. And it went to a shootout or something along those lines. And it was the only way we could watch, like, an AM, FM radio run by battery. I'm sitting at my kitchen table by candlelight listening to, I think it was Ryan Miller beating the Red Wings in a, in a shootout. Um, the, the Sabres. It was it was one of my fondest hockey memories because I thought like, man, I feel like I'm in the old age of hockey. Like you know, huddled off by myself by a little AM FM radio, listen, listen to listen, listen to the hockey game. And that it. was that that was wild, man. And you know, piggybacking like you know what you and Cully were coming off of too. You were actually right. You were playing right during the transition of uh you know the stand up to the butterfly style and you brought up how one of your idols was glenn hall who really really brought on the butterfly to start but patrick waugh cully's boy back over there on my wall is uh the one who revolutionized it you know what was that like just kind of like coming into that age where like well now i gotta completely change the entire fucking way i play to well the thing when you when i grew up everything was you stand up play the angles Stand up, play the angles, stand up, play the angles. Even if you made a save and you went down to make the save, you, you might go, the coach might say, why did you go down? <laughs> I don't know, just automatic, I, you know. But anyways, uh, uh, so when that started the transition, I was fortunate because my body, my knees, like I cannot sit cross-legged. My knees and body, hips aren't built that way. But I can sit down with my butt on the, on the, on the ground with like in a butterfly. And, and mm-hmm. so for me to kind of, uh, it, it, the hardest part was, again, it, it, it's that mental thing. When you've been drilled since you were, you know, eight years old, stand up, play the angles, stand up, play the angles. Now you're trying, you're in the NHL and you're trying to reinvent your game and your mental approach to, hey, it's okay to go down. It's okay to go down. It's okay to butterfly. And I was a big – I love stacking the pads, too. So Oh, I'm a big yeah. fan of the two-pad yeah. stack. Yeah. Here's the best part about that. And not only is it, you know, save selection has changed. And like you mentioned, Clint, it's the muscle memory that we've built is that we have so little time to react 
that it becomes a muscle memory that we read cues, right? And, and I think that the biggest difference between junior and college or even minor pro to the National League is the goaltenders is, is you're constantly making reads at such a high level and you have such little time to react that it becomes muscle memory. So having to change that, change a huge part of your game and introduce new save selections at that speed – I can't, I can't imagine what going through that. Uh, but like you said, it all comes back to if your angles are correct and, and, and you really pride yourself on that, you're going to have success. But still, to be able to, to change uh, what safe selects you're doing in, in a matter of a split second, it, tremendous, like the difficulty level on that is incredible. Yeah, yeah. No, definitely. But uh, I was able to do it more or less. I, I don't think I was ever a true, true butterfly guy because of that mental uh, – uh, just drilled into me to stand up and play the angles. But uh, I think I adapted probably easier than some guys because I had that, those wonky knees that would flare out. <laughs> You're a hybrid. Yeah. The no. hybrid. That, that, that's probably what I would – that's what Mitch Korn called me. I'm a child of the corn as well. And I remember um, I did a – you know, he was you know, a fantastic teacher and, and a real great guy. Um, I remember going to his camps and and, and – you know, for him, and, and I try to pride myself on this as a coach, you have certain goalie coaches that say, this is the way you need to play. You need to do it this way. This is the only right way. And Mitch was great in that he, you know, he made that connection with you and realized, hey, I'm not going to force you to do one thing. I'm going to make you the best goalie that you can be in the way that you play. I'm going to give you different tools and different aspects and different safe selections, but we're going to add those tools to your tool bag. And for me, that really hit home. And I try to, you know, implement that in my goalie coaching uh, because everybody plays differently and there's not one right way to play the position, but it's just about maximizing your own value and, and becoming the best that you can be. So I was a hybrid too, Clint. And I look back and what I want to say about the two pad stack is that's a momentum save. You know, if you can pull yeah. that off, the boys love it. And you don't see it a lot today, which is a shame, but I remember I was playing junior B at the time as a, as a, as a 15, 16 year old. And um, I had made a, a two pad stack uh, going right to left and uh, there was a junior a scout there and he invited me to his camp and gave me a spot on his team strictly because he saw me make that save and you know it, it we I made the save on a 201 we went back down and scored and for him that was all he needed to see he offered me a contract after seeing that so I I, I give the two-pad stack plenty of credit for that one you know Mitch Korn was um, like I was I think it was me and Darren Pupa were with Buffalo it was his first NHL deal and I guess he's probably a little intimidated about the whole NHL thing and everything. And Mitch always gives me credit um, because I, I treated him with respect, even though we, we had, it was my first goalie coach really. And um, you know, what does this guy know? He's five foot two and you know, you know, where did he play? And I didn't, I didn't do any of that. I listened to him. He had great drills. He had good. Uh, and he always kind of says, Clint, you were so good to me that first year when I was, so nervous and and uh but he's another guy that how things go around that really really supported me um when things got ugly in my life him and rick dudley and there's a couple others but i'm, I'm talking about buffalo guys yeah you know so yeah i got and, and mitch and i are still in touch today he's a great guy a great goalie mine too um oh fantastic yeah my uh, my goalie coach for the niagara ice dogs was ben vanderklok who's now nashville's goalie coach do you know ben at all so Ben, uh, Ben had worked for Mitch. Um, he was the assistant coach, and uh, when Mitch was in Nashville, so it was just cool to, you know, I worked for Ben in the summers doing his camps, um, and it's just awesome to see how Mitch is, you know, 
he's helped so many people and it's, it's awesome to hear what he did for you. Um, but just in the game of hockey, you know, you talk about the seven degrees of separation in life. I feel like in hockey, it's probably two or three, right? Because goalie world is such a small community and to see how, how Mitch has interacted and touched so many different people's lives, whether it be a goaltender or a goalie coach, you know, he's somebody that I look up to and um, Mm -hmm. yourself included And, and being a goalie coach is it's, when, when our, our position is constantly evolving, it's not an easy thing. And, and you're probably, you know, an expert to talk to about this because you live through the change as a, as a goaltender yourself, uh, you know, as the butterfly style started to come in. But even as a coach, just the post play in general, I think is a great analogy from, you know, Mark Tambrador using the old school standing straight up um, to, you know, the regular VH, your post leg being up. to now we see the reverse VH or the inverse VH where, you know, the post leg is down and we're leaning into it. It's just one example of how the position is constantly changing. And we had Marty Barana on last week. Uh, and to hear him explain it too, is he's kind of that next generation up in between you and, and, uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, and us. Um, so it's, it's a lot, non-goalies don't realize how much goes into it. And I feel like as goaltenders, you know, the game has changed dramatically. We talk about from the 90s to the 2000s and the rule changes. I feel like a lot of that has to do with the development of goaltenders and how elite we've become in, in cha- helping change the game. Well, I, I think what you're seeing too is um, what we were talking about Hasek and how he played. I mean, he played on pure athleticism and, and yep. never quit on a puck. Now the game is the, – the, they've taken a lot of athleticism out of goaltending. Because it's so technical now, um, you know. Francois Lair did this with uh, Jagir, where Jagir was kind of criticized. He won a Stanley Cup, so you know, but yeah, you know, right. criticized as a blocker. Yeah, you know, it, put yourself in a position uh, in in certain situations. This is what you do, and if it beats you, it beats you. It's not your fault. Our my mentality back then was, you know, you bear down, you do whatever you need to do, you know. Uh, you know, you, you practice your technique and everything, but when the puck is dropped in a game, all that thinking goes out the window. Absolutely. You, you read and react. I'm, I'm a firm believer in that because I never, A, I, I'm a little goalie. I, I'm, I'm sub six foot. So the blocking style never appealed to me. I had a goalie coach try to implement to me and it, it, it ruined me. And, and I had to get back to realizing I have, I, I went down to this, this simple train of thought. I have one job is to keep that little piece of rubber from getting behind me into this net. It doesn't matter how I do it. And Hasek's a great example of that. I need to prevent that. I'll use my arm, my foot, my ankle, my butt, whatever it takes, my head. And a lot of times it happens because I'm a little guy. But um, for me, it's, it's, it's great that, um, you know, Jaguar was able to, you know, get a master of angles because you need to be when you're simply blocking. But I never like to think of it as blocking. I'm going to go out and make that save. That save's not going to come to me. Right. Yeah. And, and that's what Hasek kind of made it okay for people, for goalies to, you, you can be a flopper. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter as long as you stop the puck. And he was the first real guy in the NHL that, you know, that's what he did. Um, you know, Brodeur, yeah, he'd stand up, play the angles quite a bit. He's capable of butterflying, but he would also stack the pads and yeah. play the puck. He'd play the puck yep. real well. He'd do two pad jammer. Yeah. As uh, Kali likes to call it. I love a good jammer. Uh, but, you know, you made that point on Hashik too. I think a part of it, too, was, and I've heard this about him as well, is, like, you know, people like to say about Gretzky that he was always two, two steps ahead of the play. He yeah. always knew where the puck was going to be rather than, you know, going to where the puck was going to be. 
I felt like that was kind of what Dom did too, is he was always reading the play and, yeah. you know, you hear the things that he practices, he saves during, you know, during practice. And, you know, Marty, Marty touched on it with us that, you know, there were practices went by where he didn't let any pucks in that. Like he just, he just didn't, he didn't, he didn't score on them. Um, there was, he told us a story about how Curtis Brown beat him on a breakaway once and Hashik pulled him back out of the locker room and said, get back out here. And he took 50 breakaways on him or something, some, like Hashik made him do break and he did not score on like he was either like some some large like he was either between thirty or fifty breakaways and he didn't score once on top. He yeah. just made him come back out after he celebrated in front no, of him during the, practice. That's, a, that's the competitiveness. Oh yeah. yeah. For sure. Well, hey, Clint, I, I well, we'll wrap this up. We really appreciate your time, man. I I, have, I know Dwayne has a couple more questions. My last question for you is this. Um, you know, I awesome background. Is that is that in your stable? No, that's my tack room, my tack oh, shed. Oh, man, that's sweet. I've, I never have had the opportunity to really get into, you know, horses, or, or, but I, I've ridden a few times, and, and it's, they're such fascinating creatures. And, you know, we talk about, you know, the passion and, and filling that void post-playing, post-coaching career. I know you're still involved in the game, but how important has that been for you with, with you know, getting in, into the horses? And, and uh, you know, what – What's, I guess, what's your favorite part of, of being involved in that life now? Just being outdoors, I think, and having something to do outside with animals, whether it's my horses or my dogs or, you know, chickens. <laughs> um, I'm actually currently trying to train a chicken. We're not, we're not, we're not going to go <laughs> oh there, but, but this chicken is actually trainable. So <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's incredible. I'd love to see the final results. So we'll have to follow up with you in but a couple months to see where you're at. It's therapeutic. It's therapeutic, sure. you know. You know, it's but you know your life after hockey, man. It sounds like you know, with everything you've been through and overcome, you know, it really sounds like you finally, you're finally at peace in life, and you're just enjoying life again. And just, you know, like you said, you're training chickens. <laughs> so yeah. You're doing your dad. It's awesome. <laughs> like, this is great. You're training chickens. Like, like, who, like ask, train, people ask me what chicken? I'm doing. Yeah, people ask me what I do. I, I'm out here. Th- I, I like I work for. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna say the company, but I'll say I work for a company called Schmepsy. And uh, all I do is throw uh, liquid beverages all day. And that, that's what my life consists of right now, 60 hours a week. And here we got Clint Malarchuk, you know, Sa- Sabre legend. Training he's, he's training chickens. He's training chickens. I love it. I love it. But, um, you know, just obviously, Clint, you had an unbelievable career. You know, um, you know, any stories that you'd want to share with us? Maybe you didn't share in your book, something, something, something they make, make either, you know. I, I don't know that I got enough juice on my computer left here. The power's getting pretty much. <laughs> We've tapped so them we'll, off. We'll definitely, we'll definitely get you on again, if you don't mind, sometime Not in the future, problem. just to shoot the shit. But um, again, guys, you know, um, Clint Malarchuk's book, uh, A Matter of Inches, How I Survived in the Crease and Beyond. This book is unbelievable. Um like I said, I just finished reading it, and it's honestly, and you know, I hope I correspond with you more down the road, Clint. But it's definitely helped, you know, change the way I'm going to address certain things in my life. Um, just seeing what you've overcome and how you, you know, and how you went about it, and just the the courage you, the courage it took for you to do certain things, especially to write this book to begin with. But um, one thing I do ask for sure is. If you and your wife or you and the kids, you make your way to Buffalo, do me a favor, you know, let me know ahead of time, man, because I know you like, you go to, you know, you, there's some Rudy's and stuff like that. I would love to take you down to a few places, uh, meet up with you or something down a few places in Buffalo where 
you know, the food's outstanding. And, you know, I want to shake your hand, man. I really do. Because you right, really, well, you really well, think I need to change the way I'm going to address certain things in life. Good deal. Love Glenn, to do it. I, uh, again, we appreciate it for anybody that hasn't, please check out his book. You know, you are an inspiration, man. And it's, what was it, the website? My, my website's malarchuk.com. So, I mean, with that being said, I, I appreciate not only what you've done for the game of hockey, but for anybody struggling with a mental illness and, and, and you helping, you know, take down that stigma, you, you are, you know, it's, it's safe to call you a hero in my books, man, because of what you've done and, and taking the mask off of mental illness and, and, and giving hope to, to all those people that you've helped and myself included and Dwayne included, man, I, I really can't thank you enough from the bottom of my heart. Um, in, in helping those, you know, that are battle. Everybody has their own battle. And, and you know, you're never alone in this fight. And, and what you've done through your book and your public speaking is, is really is such an inspiration. And, and so your, your, your message is so positive. And, and to see where you're at with life, man, is incredible. Uh, because yeah. we don't always see Very that. Specific. You see people in the dark times. But to see you on the other side of things with such a great family, and, and, and it's just awesome, man. I really can't thank you enough. This has been such a, an honor for me to do and so much fun, brother. All right, guys. Thank you. I great feel we only scratched the surface here. Yeah. We'll see you right. again Absolutely. See you again soon, Clint. I'm Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network.